This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 as we continue our way through the gospel of Luke. We finished chapter 15 last week where we looked at those three parables that Jesus gave us about being uh, lost and what it means to be saved. So we had the, the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. And uh, we worked our way through those. And so now we come into chapter 16, conversation continuing, but taking a little turn. I want to start this morning simply by reading through the first 13 verses of uh, chapter 16. So we'll begin in verse 1 of Luke chapter 16. It says, He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you, are no longer, uh, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteousness or by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you your truest, the true, to your trust, the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, please, dear God, make it plain, understandable, and challenging to us to correct, to change, and to encourage us as needed. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Answer honestly. After reading through this, how many of you thought, what? <laughs> right? Yeah. You thought, say, what? That does not, I don't get it. Um, you are not the first person to read through that and go, oh, what is Jesus talking about? It doesn't seem to make, here we have two unjust people, and in the end, the unjust gets commended. And oh, I, don't, I don't know what is going on here. This is not an easy passage to understand. And because of the way Jesus has used this passage, uh, it can be a little bit confusing. Because usually when we think of Jesus telling a story, we usually think of the people he puts in the story as being heroes, good people, unless he's making a point that they are bad. So the bad people are clearly bad and they wear the black hats and the white people are or the good people are clearly good and wear the white hats. But here it's all mixed around. And the person we look at and think, well, that's not good, ends up being 
commended, uh, and so it can add a little bit of confusion here. Now, once we make sense of it, once we figure out what the parable is about, what Jesus is trying to, to say here, the point actually is pretty simple and straightforward. We've just got to understand what he means by this parable. And while it's a simple parable in the end when we understand it, and the point is simple, that does not mean that it is not challenging. It is, in fact, very pointed and very challenging in terms of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. The lesson, and so I'll give you right up front what the theme and what the lesson of this parable is. The lesson of this parable is simply put this. Be diligent to live this life preparing for the next. That's the basic theme. That's the basic purpose of what this parable is about. Be diligent to live this life in preparation for the next. So Jesus tells us a story, firstly in the first eight verses, and that story he tells us so that we can illustrate what it is. And then he gives us some application in the last few verses. And so we're going to work our way through, through that. But you'll notice as we begin here, when we come to the beginning of verse 16, it says, he also said to his disciples. So our conversation has shifted a little bit here. The Pharisees are listening, and we see that later on because they come back into the conversation. But here in in chapter 15, when we've looked through those three parables, the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, we've looked at that. The discussion and the topic has been about salvation, about how to know Jesus as Savior, repentance, and what that means. And it's been directed toward the Pharisees in how to come and the need for repentance. But now as we come to chapter 16, the conversation shifts and he looks towards his disciples, those that believe him, those that are following him. And so the conversation shifts now. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about coming to him in repentance. We've shifted now. We're looking at disciples and now we're talking about discipleship what does it mean to follow jesus what does it mean now if we have repented and we've come to him what do we need to be thinking about where do we need to be going and considering there is a little connection between the story of the prodigal son before and and the steward we have here and that what we see with the prodigal son is a man who was wasteful that's prodigal what prodigal means wasteful and reckless living so he's wasted it But then he comes to repent. Here in the unjust steward that we see, he is a man who has begun and he has been wasteful with his master's things and has needed to correct that. In the chapter 15, the unbeliever is called not to waste their life living sinfully. In chapter 16, as we come to this, the believer is called to not waste their life living for temporal things, but to see beyond that so let's start by examining jesus parable we'll look at the parable and we'll try and figure out what that's about quickly and then we're going to look at how jesus applies that parable on uh, the end part to begin here firstly looking at the parable itself this is a parable about thinking ahead it's a parable about looking forward not living for the moment but looking forward it's a parable about thinking ahead The first thing that comes out as we consider this idea of looking ahead is this. Death is a certainty for all of us. Um, Good morning. Death is a certainty for all of us. Let's see if we can make a little bit of sense of this parable so that we understand why I've said that and where it's going. 
here in this parable, we have an owner. And it is probably clear here that he is not there at his property where this man is living. He's away, so he has employed this other manager to look after his affairs, to uh, diligently uh, steward what he has been given while he is elsewhere. And uh, he hears a report that this manager he has left is basically incompetent. He has not been doing what he is supposed to be doing. And there is debate here about whether he was uh, you know, a scoundrel and deliberately ripping off his master or whether he was just incompetent. I tend to think he was probably just an incompetent manager. He wasn't doing the job he was hired to do. The owner has heard about this, and then as he hears about what he has done, what he does is he says to the manager, you're fired. That's it. You're mismanaging my, my affairs. You're mismanaging my money. I'm going to dismiss you. That decision is made. So the certainty of this manager's future is that he is no longer going to be working for this owner. He has been fired from that position, so he has lost his job. When he hears that, so he still has a little bit of time. Maybe the time is for the, the owner to make his way back to uh, where the manager is at, the property. But there's a little bit of time in between when the owner sends the message and says you're fired to the time he's actually fired. So he's here, the manager's here thinking, uh, what am I going to do? If I'm fired from this job, I will have nothing to do. Uh, no one will hire me because I'm being fired for not doing my job. And he says, look, I, I don't want to go dig holes because I'm a white collar worker. I don't do that. He says, and I don't want to beg. So I've got to come up with a way to save my reputation. I've got to come up with a way where I don't have to dig holes or beg for money, but I can keep a good job. And so he devises this scheme. Now, it may not be illegal what he's done because he goes out to those that owe his master money and, and he writes down their debt. And so if they owe, one of them owes 100, says you owe 50, the other 80. And so he, he brings that debt down so they have to pay less. It may be, and say, so because we're, there's uncertainty about all the exact details, in the end we all come out at the same place. Maybe he was doing something dodgy here and just saying, look, just give me whatever you can. But it could be also that while it was not legal for Jews to uh, charge uh, interest to other Jews, it would often happen in that they would hide it in the price of what they paid. So it's possible here that what he was doing is simply lowering the amount of interest they were being required to pay that was hidden in the cost to begin with. Either way, what he has done is the contract that had been signed, he's lowering it. Quite significantly, the amount that these two men that are illustrated here owe on both parts, when you take it all in, is about 18 months' wages worth of money that these men owe. And he's cutting it, well, for one in half and the other significantly. Now, in doing this, by devising this scheme and going to those that owe his master money and bringing down their debt, he is doing something good for himself. That is, he is at least gaining something for his master. So the, even though he's fired, he's still getting something in and he can say, well, look, at least I did something. So the owner can look at him and say, well, you weren't as bad as I heard you were, but you're still fired. 
but you weren't as bad as I heard. The other thing is, by going to those other um, people who owe the master money and saying, look, I'll bring down your debt, it gives him a good presence in their eyes. So when he loses this job, he can perhaps find another one amongst these creditors saying, look, didn't I do a good job for you at the other place? I brought down your debt. It's his hope that in doing this, he will prepare himself to have a job afterwards so that he's not left on the street. That's the scheme he comes up with. He still lost his job, but he, in the end, he is commended. The question then is, why is he commended? It says there that the owner commends him for what he's, he's done, but what is it that he's commended for? It says that he is commended for his shrewdness. He's commended for his shrewdness, and we'll look at that as we go through. But essentially this, he sees that the end is coming. So he can see, my job is just about over. I'm losing my job. So I need to do something so that I'm ready for what comes after that job. That's the basics of the story. A man loses his job. He is just doing whatever he can to prepare himself for what's after that moment he loses his job. So as we think about this, and we think about this idea of what Jesus is trying to tell us, the idea that death is a certainty for all of us comes from the the basic idea here. No one lives forever in this world. What motivates this manager in the end? What is it that's moving him? For all of this time, he's been incompetent. He hasn't been doing what he's doing, and then all of a sudden, he's busy about with those that owe money, trying to get money in. What is it that's motivating him here? His job is lost, and he needs to prepare for what's afterwards. He's afraid of what's to come. He's thinking about what is ahead. In the story here, the dismissal of the manager, so his firing is equivalent to death. So it is the end of an era. It is the end of a time. This life isn't forever. Just like this man's job had an end, this life has an end. Now, as we look at this and we think about the the idea is with the job being the end and that there is a future beyond that, we're thinking this life has an end and there is something beyond that. Now, bear in mind, we're talking here to disciples, so what we're not talking about here is the difference between heaven and hell. Now, in a couple of weeks, when we get to the end of chapter 16, we're going to be talking about the reality of hell, because Jesus does. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's not whether he's going to go to hell or not go to hell, because we're talking to disciples. What we're talking about here is about the reward, about the reception that comes in heaven afterwards. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 begins by telling us, and as it is appointed for men to die once. Every one of us lives a life, and every one of us is going to come to an end of that life. Death comes for all. It is true that there is a difference after that for the believer and the unbeliever. For the believer, there is heaven. For the unbeliever, because of sin, there is condemnation and judgment. And because there is this dismissal, this death, this end, the next part of the story here with the dismissal is what happens? He gets dismissed, and what is going to happen? He is going to have to give an account. And that also applies to us. At the end, at death, every one of us must give an account. 
What have we been doing with what we have been given to steward? How have we done it? Why is the deadline so important? Always we think about the, the, the manager. Why is he working so hard for that moment when he will finally lose his job? Because he needs to know what's going to happen afterwards and be prepared for it. I think, why is the, the deadline in this life so important? Why do we, we need to work? Why do we need to be prepared here? Because when we think about it, we think about it, you're for the true believer, for every true believer in Christ, heaven is a guarantee. So why is that deadline? Why is the end of life so important if for the believer heaven is a guarantee? Because the end of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says this, but after this, the judgment. Every one of us comes to death. And after that death, there is a judgment. A reckoning comes for all. To the unbeliever, that reckoning is to condemnation. But here, the believer, we're told, must give account also. What kind of manager have we been for God? Second Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 9 and 10, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He says this about that reckoning that is to come. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what has been done, whether good or bad. We are a steward. We are stewards of God's grace and of his goodness. What he gives us in this life, the blessings he pours into this life, we are to handle well. We are to manage with faithfulness and honor. In 1 Corinthians, the first time that Paul wrote to this church, he, he mentions something about that, that reckoning, about that judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, verse 11, he says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, so your foundation for life is Jesus Christ. You have that, you're saved, your foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if we build on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? What is it? He says, you've been saved. You have the foundation of Jesus Christ. It is then your responsibility to build on that. What are you going to build on it? Are you going to build on your life things that are going to last? Things that will remain. So here it's gold and silver and precious stones. Because why? When the reckoning comes, which he describes as a fire, those things survive the fire. But if you build on that, that uh, foundation of your salvation in Jesus Christ with things that are wasteful and unfruitful, he describes them as wood, hay, and stubble. When the reckoning comes, which he describes by fire, they do not survive the fire, and you are left empty-handed. 
there is a reckoning. And that reckoning comes for what we have done in this life. That is why the deadline is so important. What happens in this life matters. Just because as believers we can say, oh, I believe Jesus Christ, I've been saved from my sin, uh, that heaven is there, that's not all there is to it. What happens in this life matters. As surely as the manager in this story was dismissed and accountable, so we will depart this world and be accountable. So, we need to be wise and prepare. To be wise and prepare, the steward here is said to be shrewd. We need to be a shrewd servant. Knowing what was to come, the manager prepared. To be shrewd, uh, shrewd means to to act wisely, to uh, act with insight, to look at a situation and use good judgment on what to do in that circumstance. That's why this servant is commended. He's commended because he looked at the circumstances he was in and he acted wisely. He acted intelligently in those circumstances to prepare for what was ahead. The lesson here is in the actions right here at this moment. He acted in the interest of his future. That's what he was doing. He's losing his job. He needs to know what is ahead. He is now acting here. He is doing whatever he needs to do to secure his future. He looked at the situation and he made good judgment. He acted wisely in his circumstances. And he was able to bring benefit here to himself and to others. Granted, the benefit he brought to his master wasn't what it should have been, but he was able to bring benefit to his masters. To the creditors, to those that, that owed, he was able to bring benefit to them by bringing down their debt for them. And for himself, he kept at least some of his good name. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This is how we're to live in this life. We need to have the gentleness of doves. But live wisely. Just look at the world and look at our circumstances and think about using that properly. Why is that important? Because time is short. Time is short. Life is short. The time of accounting may not be very far away. In Psalm 39, in verse 5, it says, Indeed, you have made my days as a handbreadth, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 13, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The day of reckoning is not far away. There is an urgency about what we do in this life. Each one of us has no guarantee of tomorrow. The time is short, so we diligently prepare. We diligently 
prepare. In Ephesians chapter 5, just read a few verses there for you from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. It says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, buying back the time, using the time well, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Jesus, when he draws us here and he brings us through this story, he comes to the verse 8. And here in verse 8, he draws a comparison for us. Last part of verse 8, he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So he's drawing a comparison for us here, and he's saying, all right, I've told you a story about an earthly situation. The people are flawed, and they're problem, but they're thinking here, the story is about a man who is thinking about his earthly future. And, of course, the, the theme rings true. If we know that we're going to lose our job, we're going to do our very best to provide for the future ahead of us. We're going to do what we need to do to get ahead. And he says, if people who are unsaved, if people who are of this world are so diligent in thinking about their future in a temporal life, what are we, the people of God, doing about the future which is beyond that? If to live in this world we are so concerned about what might be the next day or what might happen after we lose our job, why are we not as nearly concerned about what happened when death comes and preparing beyond that? It says in Ephesians and Romans where we read before, we need to not be slothful and incompetent, but rather do absolutely everything you can to prepare for eternity. What did the manager do? He did everything he possibly could so that he could prepare for after he lost his job. What is Jesus reminding us to do? He says, do everything you can in this life for what happens after death. Whatever it takes to live for God, live this life in view of the next. Pursue God's will with zeal and persistence. Do whatever it takes to be prepared. That's the gist of the story. But then Jesus gives us a few words here, a few verses here of application, that Jesus gives of application to that. And so let's think on those applications for a moment. Here he is giving us to to push us beyond to think more about this, about living with eternity in mind, and he writes for us a few, or speaks for us here, a few important things to remember. In verse 9, he says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So here is some things, some applications Jesus makes to us about how we can live and do whatever it takes in this life to be prepared for the next. And the first is this. Use your wealth, use your worldly gain to gain friends forever. Use the resources, use what you have here in this life to gain friends forever. So what he says here as we look through this is we need to use your wealth in this world. 
You know, a lot of people, many, use their wealth to buy friends. I've got wealth so I can buy this. And that's to a selfish end. We want something. That's what we saw with the prodigal son, wasn't it? He gets his inheritance from his father. He goes out far away and he spends all his money trying to make friends and be popular. And he wastes it all. And then when the money goes, what happens? So do all of his friends. The money went away. When the wealth goes, so do the friends. But this, what Jesus is talking about here in verse 9, is this is about using our resources to make eternal friends. What are we doing with what God has given us in this world, which has an eternal benefit? That is, how can we use, how can we deploy what we have here so that we can meet them in heaven? You know, to use a, a teenage girl vernacular, we're looking at finding our BFFs, our best friends forever. Genuinely, forever. How can I deploy my resources so that I can make friends that I will have literally and truly forever? Into eternity. That is, it's about using what you have for proclaiming the gospel. What have I got and how can I use that to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel with others so that they can find Jesus Christ? And when we get to heaven, they will welcome me in with open arms because they're there and I'm there and we are here because of God's great grace. He talks about unrighteous mammon and that doesn't mean that, that your resources and that your money and these things are, are evil. It simply means that they are of this world. So what he's saying is use what you have of this world for the benefit of the next. What has God given me in this world that is useful in this world that can be used even more appropriately for the next? Of course, next is obvious. Your wealth will go. But when we use our resources, when we use our wealth for God like this, the results last. You know, we spend our money recklessly like the prodigal son did. We have nothing to show for it. But when we give our money to the work of God and use it for, for eternal good, the results last. He says so that when you fail or when it fails, so depending on how we read it, it could be when you die or when you die and the money goes. Either way, what it means is when you die, you can't take it with you. So when you go or when it goes, when it fails, you can't take it with you. So amassing wealth in this world is a waste of the people of God's time. We'd use it for the gospel. The impact goes on beyond us. Don't make fair weather friends. Make eternal friends. In fact, not just friends, family who will rejoice to see you in heaven. So the question comes to us then, how can I invest my wealth for eternal gain? Because the story here, and what Jesus is telling us here, is, is not that wealth is bad. So don't take that message that he's saying wealth is bad. What he's saying is wealth can have a much greater purpose than what we think. How can I invest my wealth for eternal gain? Consider the resources you have. Consider the relationships that you have. How can these be deployed for eternal gain? 
You know, if we change our thinking as, as people to think to invest in people and not things, how can I release what I've been given for the glory of God? And it's not just about giving money away. So when we talk about this, it's not just, oh, well, I've got to give all my money away. That's not what he's saying, just give money away. But how can I take what I have? How can I take what I've been given and invest that somewhere or put it somewhere in a way that is going to bring eternal good? I remember when, when uh, the church started, there was a pastor that was interested and wanted to help. And, and I suggested to him at the time that there was some practical things that we could really use and really help. But they really just wanted to give money. And money was great, and, and you know that's helpful, but sometimes money isn't the answer to the problem. So what Jesus is saying here is not just about giving away money. It's about thinking about how can I use what I've got in some way for an eternal good? How can they be best used? Maybe it's I can use my house for a Bible study or Zoom, as it were. I'm happy to help set that up and prepare that and involve with that. Maybe it's I'm going to invest my money in an instrument and in a lesson to instrument because I can use that to to praise God and help others worship and and draw people to Christ through using that talent or that skill. See, so I'm not giving them money away, but I'm using it. I'm investing it for an eternal purpose. Or maybe it's uh, you know, buying a coffee machine and getting barista training so that you have the opportunities you make coffee for people, you're talking to them and encouraging them or drawing them to Christ. Maybe it's things you know, like we've been talking about Jill's trip and being able to go to somewhere else and minister to someone else and then being able to share in that with her and give things that need to be done or the, the Christmas boxes. Or maybe it's a business opportunity that you have that could create opportunities to spread the gospel. See, so it's not just about, I've got money and God says I have to give all my money away. No, it's about, this is what God has blessed me with. How can I take what I've been blessed with and use it in some way in which I can reach people with the gospel? So the first lesson that Jesus shares us here is use your wealth to gain forever friends. Secondly, use your wealth faithfully, not wastefully. He says in verse 10, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Use what you have been given for God. Here, he puts it in terms of faithfulness. And he puts it in the context of managers. It's about perspective. See, all that we have is a gift. What we have is a gift. The, this is, you, these sorts of sermons, no pastor likes to preach because people come to church and think, here we go, we've gone to church, the pastor tells us about money again. I'm not telling you that you need to give all your money to church. or that you need to, What I'm saying is we need to, all of us, including me, have the resources that God has blessed me with be used beyond that. You see, because what I've been given in wealth or resources in this life is not mine. It's not mine. It is a gift from God. It is a grace of God that I have whatever I have. 
And when I start looking at what I have as mine, that's where the problem starts to arise. But it's not mine. It's God's. I'm simply a manager of it. I've been given it to do and use it for him. It's about perspective. It's not given for our own pleasure. What we find, though, is when we use it for the glory of God and the pursuit of eternal goodness, we find greater pleasure than we could possibly imagine elsewhere. See, it's not about the extent of your riches, but the depth of your character. Jesus has talked to us already in Luke about this before. To focus on the wealth and to focus on the resources misses the point. What Jesus is getting at is the resources reveal our heart. What you do with what you have shows what you love. So how can I invest my resources faithfully? Perhaps our resources need to be redeployed, reimagined. Do I really need three different streaming services to watch stuff in my home? Do I need a Luland cruiser? Well, maybe. I've given money to missionaries before so they could buy brand new land cruisers because that would aid in the presentation of the gospel to those that need it. Do I need a new land cruiser? No. That would be wasteful, not faithful. So depending on where you are and what you have, those things can change. But how can I redeploy what I have? Ask yourself, what is the best use of God's resources? and How to use them as we ought. And thirdly, in verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Use your wealth to serve God, not self. Wealth, wealth is a cruel master. To pursue wealth is to be its servant. We read at the beginning of the service from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and perceived them or and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Wealth is a cruel master, it never satisfied, and as quickly as it comes into life, it goes. But while wealth is a cruel master, God is a gracious master. He is gracious and he is good. And in fact, over and over and over again through Scripture, what he does say he will do is when we invest what he's given us into what is good for eternity, he says he abundantly blesses that. That is, if you are faithful in a little, if you take what God gives you at the beginning and you use that for the good of, of, of others and the glory of God, God increases that because you've shown yourself faithful in a little. So he will increase it so that you can show yourself faithful in more and more and more. God is good and gracious. Take what is used for good and bless it. You know, recent studies indicate that we think about money more than anything else. Up to about 50% of our life will be spent thinking about money and money issues. Jesus understands that. He knows it's important. 
He knows that it's part of life, that it's a necessity and a necessary part of life. We need it to buy and sell and to live. He knows that. And so he's not saying that, that having money and, being, and using it is wrong. He's asking us to consider how we're using it, how we use the resources. It doesn't have to be the focus of our life. The object is these lessons... And what he uses here is money. But it could be any other resource that God gives us. Time, talents, skills. We can take the same lessons and apply it to any of those things. But because money finds itself so much at the center of who we are and what we do, it becomes the most obvious example. The real point Jesus is making here is how are you preparing for eternity? What are you using in this life right now? What are you doing with this life right now that is preparing you and others for what will come when death inevitably arrives? See, one day, either at your death or at the return of Jesus Christ, every believer will stand before Jesus Christ and have to give account of what we have done in this life for the glory of God and the good of others. How have we used, how have we managed the resources that God has given us for his glory? We can't escape that. Every one of us will give account of that. Are we leveraging everything we have for eternal purpose? Are we living shrewdly, wisely in this life for the benefit of the next? See, time is short. Death will come and a reckoning will follow. This life matters for the next. It matters. You can make an eternal impact in the lives of others in this world. Are you doing whatever it takes to live for God and to prepare for eternity? Like this manager, whatever it takes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these... Stories, as often, have a simple point to them. But as is so often the case in your stories with simple points, the point is very sharp. It cuts and it hurts sometimes because it opens up our eyes to examine ourselves. So, dear God, as we consider your words this morning... We ask that you would help us to have a mind which is prepared to do whatever it takes for the good of the next life, that we would be using and manifesting our resources in a way which is good for believers and bringing others into the family of God. We ask, Lord, that you would bless and encourage us, and Lord, as we are faithful with your resources, bless us that we might be able to pass on more resources for your glory and the eternal good of others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.